Welcome back, everyone. And our first question says, would you please explain why Jesus called them gods in John 10, 34? I don't get it. Thank you. Uh, he did not call them John, gods in John 10, 34. If you read the context, uh, he, they were about to stone and He said, with, with, for what good thing are you going to stone me? And they said, we're not going to stone you for the good you've done, but you, a mere man, claim to be God. He responds to them by saying, is it not written in your law? I have said you are gods. If he called them gods, who, to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, what about the one who the Father set apart? So he is not endorsing them as gods. He's meeting them in their understanding that they believed in their traditions that, that, God, that some people were called gods that received the word of God. But he is not endorsing that. He's just meeting them. And if, if they accepted that, why would they uh, want to stone him uh, who has come from God? So he was pointing out their hypocrisy. If you were looking to tithe to a ministry but found out someone, a part of the ministry, smokes, would it be wrong to look elsewhere to send your tithe, or is the smoking irrelevant because that is that person's personal choice and business, and their choice doesn't affect their ministry? So an interesting question. Uh, I would, uh, before I give my direct answer, I'd say, if you were looking to support a ministry and you found out that one of them was maybe embezzling a little money and uh, betrayed the leader of that ministry uh, to be crucified, uh, would you support that ministry? Or you found out one of the main leaders in that ministry cursed publicly the leader of that ministry and, uh, and denied knowing him. Uh, would you want to support that ministry? The point being is, if you're looking for a ministry that doesn't have people involved, um, with the, in other words, it doesn't have sinners involved in it, you, then, then you're, then you're going to have to look for angel ministries in heaven because every ministry on earth is made up of sinners and sinners are in different um, path, uh, places in the recovery process from sin and, uh, and struggling with different areas in their life through God's grace. And so... I think it would be a trap or a mistake to look at individual people, uh, particularly the example of smoking, because smoking is, is a sin primarily against himself, not against others. Um, where you want to look is to the ministry itself. Is the ministry fulfilling the purpose in advancing the gospel for this time, the message of God to prepare the world for this time? And are they doing an effective um, uh, work in that regard? And in that case, then you want to support the ministry. Um, irrespective of an individual uh, who might struggle. I can't imagine a ministry that doesn't have somebody associated with it that's not struggling with some, something uh, along these lines. Is it normal to feel more of a kindred spirit with one of the Godhead than the other two? I love and appreciate what Jesus has done for me. I respect and fear God the Father. However, I see the workings of the Holy Spirit daily in my life. I feel closer to the Spirit. Is that normal? So, yes, because we come from different places and we have different um, personality traits. It's, it's similar to some parents some, uh, and their children. Uh, we will feel closer to those individuals that we experience that we have more in common with. And, uh, and most people feel closer to Jesus because he became human and we can identify more closely with him. But certainly, and this is why God represents himself in Scripture in so many different ways, as a father, as the son, as our brother, as a, as a uh, mother who loves her children and, and nurses her children, as a hand who protects her chicks. Um, God presents himself to us in so many ways to help all the variety of different people from their different backgrounds and walks 
find some aspect that they can identify with and connect with him. So yes, of course it's okay. And ultimately, when we get to heaven, we'll recognize they're all equally uh, trustworthy and lovable, and we will come to that same knowledge and unity with all of them. Please explain why Jesus uses the word hell in some places, in some of his parables. How do I explain hell to a friend? I believe there is no place as, quote, hell, uh, an unquenchable fire, but is just a one you can escape from that is meant for those that deny God and are destroyed, but it is a state of non-existence. Okay, first off, Jesus never used the word hell. Uh, Jesus used the word, uh, two words, all but one time Jesus used the word Gehenna, which is translated hell, and it really means, uh, it comes from an, a dump that was outside of Jerusalem where they burned their refuse or trash. So Jesus is re- referring to a place where all of the residual you know, bodies and people who've died and everything that's left over from sin will eventually be burned up and destroyed. So it's the cleansing fire that he's describing where all the refuse is burned, not a place of eternal torment, uh, Gehenna. The only time he used um, Hades uh, for hell uh, was in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And he's talking now about their myths and their beliefs and and making an object lesson from that. He used the term Hades in that sense. Um, and this was a place where the where the so called soul was suffering, and and he was uh, used that term referencing the mythological place of eternal torment, and uh, and he wasn't endorsing it; he was using that to uh, give the lessons about it's it's now the time to decide. And and in both of these, I would tell you if you want to know more, go to our website, use the search engine at the top of our website, type in hell, you will find a long blog that gives all the Bible references describing what biblical hell actually is. Uh, that you can use. You can print that out. And if you want to know about the parable Lazarus and the rich man, type in Lazarus and you will find that parable where I go in and explain and show that that is a parable, not a literal story. What is your view of emotional intelligence? Uh, Neil Nedley teaches this subject at Weimar, uh, having trouble distinguishing between emotions and feelings. So this is just a way of describing that within the um, landscape of the human being, there are a variety of different uh, attributes that we have in greater or lesser degrees of proficiency. For instance, there are some who are very artistic and some who are not. Some who are very musical and some who are not. Some who are very analytic and and uh, and some who are not. Some have great mathematical skills and some can barely do basic math. And then some who are very skilled in emotional intelligence, uh, uh, their own emotions, understanding them and processing them, and also being sensitive to other people's emotions and some who are not. And so emotional intelligence is just a way of saying somebody who has mature ability to understand, process their own emotions, and be aware and deal with the emotional dis, uh, emotions that other people may be bringing to a situation. Uh, it's just a way of saying that the more mature we are, the more we're able to handle difficult emotions in godly ways. And we all have different skill sets. And just like you can be taught math or you can be taught some music lessons. You may not have Mozart's skill, but even without Mozart's skill, you can learn some basics of uh, music or or some art or things like that. Uh, people can be taught better ways to process their, their emotions, and that's learning some emotional intelligence. That's all it's saying. I want to start celebrating and observing the Sabbath, but the job I now have has me on the road a lot and many times over the Sabbath. I have a local job offer with a family that would be good, but I would have to work every other Saturday. 
The only view of Sabbath I've been taught when I was uh, younger was a very strict religious view. Can I still keep the Sabbath if I'm working? How would you all in the audience answer that? Wow. Yes or no? Yes, you can. It's according to what you're doing. If you're caring for people, you're doing God's work. Okay, so I love the, uh, so it's interesting, yeah, so I think the default from, from our, our, from a legal view would be, will be, no, we can't, we can't keep this habit of working, uh, but then if, if that's the case, then nobody could be a pastor, could they? Because don't pastors work on Sabbath? Yes. So that's their job, that's what they're paid for. Well, they can't, they can't be a pastor and work on Sabbath then. Oh, no. So we see you're exactly right. It really depends on the work, and it depends on the motive of the work. So it's not actually the work. It's not actually spending energy to work. It's are we working for God and his kingdom, or are we working for ourselves? Are we, just, are we on Sabbath supposed to stop working for God and his kingdom? No. No, no we can actually work very hard on that day. Uh, if we're working for God and his kingdom. But if we're only working for self, then that's the problem. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift to give us opportunity to cease and desist the self-labors and to engage in relationship with God and work for his kingdom. And that might be working through praise and worship. It might be working through ministering to somebody in need on that day. There's a lot of ways that we can advance his kingdom. So I can't answer you. It really will depend on the motive of, 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 of what you're doing, not, not specifically what you're doing. <clears throat> if I pray hard for hard experiences and suffering for those who cause harm, make unnecessary rules, evil, hurt others. In other words, if I pray for, for, for hard experiences and suffering for those who do bad things, um, <clears throat> so that they might repent in the Lord and be saved. Yet also, I want those individuals to reap a little bit of their what they've meted out on others. I want them to get a little payback there, maybe. Are, are, are these prayers mimicking David in the Psalms, or is this my burden, uh, uh, burdened hate shining through? I think it's a human heart navigating through the pain and suffering that sin causes, and the fact that you're talking to God about it is exactly what David's um, history recorded in Scripture is to teach us. If you have hate and resentment and you want to see somebody suffer and, and, and hurt because of it, God wants you to come to him and talk to him and say, boy, I hate that person, what they did to me. Lord, please make them pay, make them pay. I hate them so bad. I hate them with a pure hatred. I hate them with a righteous hatred. I want them to suffer. Okay, go to God with that. Don't go to God and say, while you hate your your neighbor in your heart, don't go to God and say, and Lord, please bless my neighbor while inside you're harboring hatred. That is a fraudulent prayer. That's deception. That's practicing uh, deceit. No, if you actually have those feelings, God already knows it. Talk to him about it. And then also, hopefully, you'll get to the Psalms where David says after he prays these things, but search me, O Lord, and see if there's any wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. This is how I feel, Lord. This is what I want. But if that's really not the way of life, if that's really not good for for me, if it doesn't glorify you, Lord, then let's fix that part of me. But that's how I'm feeling right now. So having the conversation with God about those is the absolute best thing you can do. Now, somebody's uh, email or uh, uh, posted a request that I watch a video and give some feedback. And I checked 
the video link. It's a like a two hour video, so no, I'm not going to watch it. Um, I, I I jumped around uh, a few a few places and I realized that it is on the sanctuary service of the Old Testament. I have no idea what they present there. I would just tell you go to our website, go to our um, resources section, and we have an entire seminar we've done on the Old Testament sanctuary service and uh, the symbolisms there. And I encourage you, if you have questions about that and would like to know our thoughts on it, watch that three-part seminar in the Q&A time, and I think it will answer most of your questions and clear that up. Next question. In your sanctuary perspective, I've understood as you, uh, as you saying that if we die trusting the Lord, that he will fix any residual defects in our minds while we sleep. Have I understood correctly? Generally, in a general way, yes. Uh, it goes on to say, um, please then comment on this Ellen White quote. If you would be a saint in heaven, you must first be a saint on earth. The traits of character you cherish in life will be will not be changed by death or by the resurrection. You will come up from the grave with the same disposition you manifested in your home and in society. Jesus has not changed the character at his coming. The work of transformation must be done now. Our daily lives are determining our destiny. Defects of character must be repented of and overcome through the grace of Christ, and a symmetrical character must be formed while in this probationary state uh, that we may be fitted for the mansions above. Now, this is an exact harmony with what we teach. Notice, but I can understand how it could sound confusing. Notice what it says, the traits of character you cherish in this life will not be changed by death. In other words, if you cherish hatred and rebellion and deceit and exploitation and abuse, you will develop that type of character and will not be changed. However, if you are like the man of Romans 7, who has a desire in his heart to do what is right, in my heart I desire to do God's will, but sometimes I find myself not doing God's will. And oh, when I do that, oh, I grieve in my heart because the, the good I don't want to do is not the good that I'm doing. Oh no, it's the evil that I don't want to do anymore. You see, that man is not cherishing. He's still struggling, and once we come to conversion, we're on a pathway of maturing and sanctifying, but we don't all arrive there on the day of conversion. And so when we have given our heart to Christ as in the thief on the cross, and how much growth and maturity did he do before he passed from this earth? Not much. (laughs) Not much. But he falls asleep in Jesus, and during the investigative judgment, Jesus, uh, because he gave him full consent, fixes all the residual defects that he didn't have time. And so when he rises at the resurrection, he will not rise with propensities to steal and cheat. Martin Luther, the great reformer, will not rise with the desire to get drunk or to hatred for the Jews. Uh, All of these residual defects that he was that we all struggle with, if we haven't had that victory in this earthly life, the heart desires it, it will be achieved for us through what Christ is doing in his ministry right now. So when we rise, we rise in perfection. That doesn't mean that some people on this earth will not have that victory now. There's at least two examples of people who achieve that in history, Enoch and Elijah. They walked with God to the point that all the residual defects were completely sealed out of them and they went into heaven in perfected state. And there will be people in that state when Jesus comes again who will be translated, and Paul describes those in Thessalonians. 
But for those who don't achieve that state and they pass beforehand, that they don't need to fear. Jesus will, will clean up all residual defects, so when they rise, they will see him face to face, for we shall be like him, it says. Can a person have the love of God without God's law of love? No, because they're one and the same. God's law is a living law. It comes from God. It's an expression of his character. It is reproduced in us. I'll write my law in your hearts and minds. Um, they're the same. God's law of love is not a rule book. It is a method or principle of living that life is built upon. Is the seventh-day Sabbath of the fourth commandment the eternal Sabbath from God's heart, or is it just a rule for humanity from his mouth? Now, these are interesting questions, how they're structured. I can't, I can't, uh, can't endorse the structures of these questions because there's subtle little implications in the, in the, in the uh, question. For instance, the eternal Sabbath. Well, what do you mean by eternal if you would have said the commandment is the fourth commandment, the Sabbath that will that is referenced in Isaiah about all the, the the saved will come from one Sabbath to another in the future, then that's one thing. But eternal to me means eternally, like the eternal gospel in, in the three angels' message, which is the gospel that's true in eternity past as well as eternity future. And in eternity past, there was a time where there was no Sabbath. So there is no eternal gospel, excuse me, eternal Sabbath in eternity past. The Sabbath was created. Jesus himself said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, there was a time when the weekly Sabbath measured by this planet's rotation in this uh, round uh, in relation to the sun that was created on day four of creation week of this planet, that this weekly Sabbath did not exist. And that's because there was no need for a weekly Sabbath prior to Satan's rebellion. And the Sabbath was a gift of God to humankind to specifically help us in our struggle in the great controversy as a weekly evidence uh, or a flag, a sign of the principles and kingdoms of God and the reliability of his methods and that we have true freedom with him. And so, yes, the Sabbath will exist for all eternity future as a reminder and a historic uh, of the of the history of what God has done for us, but uh, I, I don't think it was eternally in existence, in the existence past. When Jesus used the word sleeping for actual death, the cessation of life, was he inferring that there will be awakening up time in the morning? So again, the question I have to take issue with. Jesus said uh, about those who believe in him, even though they die, they shall never die. So he didn't use this idea of sleeping death as actually being uh, being dead. He actually described it as being asleep. And when you're asleep, you're not dead. Those who believe in me will never die, he says. So when we talk about death that is the wages of sin death, it is not the sleep until you're resurrected. It is an eternal non-existence. And that doesn't happen to anybody until after the thousand years. The righteous and the wicked both who have, quote, died through history are in a state of sleep waiting for a resurrection, either the resurrection of righteous or the resurrection of damnation. And so um, the sleep is not a state of, of death from sin. It is, a, uh, it is a state of grace, an artificial state of, of existence that God's grace allows to exist while the plan of salvation is being carried out. The eternal death, though, that's a, data, a, a state of non-existence from which there's no resurrection. Can a person be a Christian without the uh, God's law in his heart? Hebrews 8, 10. No, we answered that already. No, we cannot. Since there is only one church that God authorizes in the Old Testament, and again, only one church that God authorizes in the New Testament, why on earth are there so many churches all claiming 
uh, to worship uh, the Father, uh, possessed the Holy Spirit, led by Jesus? First off, there's this, a lot of assumptions in this question. Again, these questions are written to set up certain diametrical conclusions that are not really. Um, so if you would have said, if there's one authorized group of people, the, the nation of Israel, the Old Testament, um, authorized for what? Authorized to be his representatives, okay. Authorized to be the avenue through which Messiah was come, okay. Authorized to be the protectors of the Old Testament uh, scriptures, okay. Authorized to carry out the, the teaching plan of the sanctuary, okay. Uh, all that's true. They were to be his priests, uh, a, a nation to take the gospel to the world. That's true, too. But they were not authorized as the sole um group through that could experience salvation. In other words, you did not have to join that group to experience salvation. Uh, Melchizedek was not a descendant of Abraham. Abraham paid him tithe. Uh, he experienced salvation. Uh, Naaman, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we have examples of others who did not join that group and they experienced salvation. So you did not have to be part of the group to experience salvation, but you did have to be part of the group if you wanted to be part of that system of teaching. And that's what it was for. Uh, Rahab joined the group, and she became one of the progenitors of the line of Christ, as did Ruth. And both of them were not uh, descendants of Abraham. And so you could join the group and be part of the teaching team, the acting troop, and the avenue for Messiah, but you could still experience salvation if you participated in the reality that all of that system was designed to teach, which was ultimately a new heart and right spirit and having the living law of God restored into your heart. What are the seven thunders of Revelation? Uh, we are not revealed. That actually has not been uh, disclosed. And by the way, why are there so many uh, uh, different churches? Because of the imposed law lie that infected uh, the Christian church, that God's law works like human law. And with human law, then there's a million different ways for the law to be written, just like with all the different human laws in Congress and in your state and in your county and in your city. And look at all the different laws and the ways those laws are parsed and divided and all the different governments of the world. And introducing um, the idea that there is all these different laws introduces all the different ways scriptures are interpreted by all the different legal people who want to do it right. And they all argue against each other. But when you come back to design law and you understand how reality works, then we have a unity which is inherited in our faith, it says in Ephesians. What did Jesus mean when he said we must be born again uh, to become the kingdom of God? Because we are born into the world with fear and selfishness in our heart, which is the antagonistic to the principles of God's kingdom. And we must die to those methods and have the new methods of love and trust restored in our heart. Let's become new people with new motives. And thus we have God's character established in our heart and we look like him and become agents of his kingdom or children of heaven. Uh, good morning. My daughter is a member of the SDA church. She hasn't gone regularly to church for some time. She and her common law boyfriend are currently having Bible studies. The pastor found out they're living together and has requested she withdraw her membership. How does she respond? She's very turned off. Thank you. First off, she needs to recognize that salvation is not found in church membership. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage her to continue her relationship with Jesus Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to lead her to make whatever changes in her life that the Holy Spirit has uh, convicted her are interfering with her salvation in Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the, the pastor 
is not primarily interested in uh, her soul salvation. He's interested in protecting the institution and holding the standards of the institution. And therefore, if she doesn't keep the rules of the institution, the institution is a club. And in order to maintain your membership in the club, you have to adhere to the rules of the club. You have to pay your dues. You have to uh, uh, behave in certain ways. And, and she is right now living in ways that the club does not recognize. And so the pastor as a club enforcer, as the bouncer of the club, has said she can't be part of the club anymore. Now, she can visit as a guest, but she can't have membership in the club until she conforms to the club's rules. Uh, and one of the sad things that's happened in the Adventist church system is that there's been this unconscious or maybe purposeful, I don't know, um, marriage between church membership and salvation where many Adventists come to actually feel that their salvation is dependent upon being in good standing with the club. It's not true. You can have salvation just like Naaman or in the Old Testament or Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who were never members of the club, but you can't participate in church office, um, uh, uh, being in church leadership, uh, and fulfill roles within the organization, be recognized in the organization as a member, uh, unless you meet the standards of the club. Does that mean you can't work for God if you're not a member of the club? You absolutely can work for God, even if you're not a member of the club. And there are examples of that in the Old Testament as well. But you cannot work for God if, in your, if, in you, if you are in rebellion against him. You have to surrender to him and follow his will in order to be useful in his cause. And so I would encourage her to keep her Bible studies up and her pursuit of her relationship with Jesus Christ and honestly ask Jesus what things she needs to change in her life. This idea of common law boyfriend, um, understand most marriages through human history were what we would call common law. They weren't filed at the local magistrate in the, in the human governments. Human governments getting involved in marriages only happened at the time of the Reformation. Prior to the Reformation, marriages were community events and they were family events. And they then also became uh, Roman Catholic Church events as well, where they held power over community through it as well. But uh, the, the legal aspects of marriage that were coded into the laws of the states uh, was something fairly modern. So um, at the end of the day, uh, if she, uh, she needs to have her conscience before the Lord and follow whatever the Lord is dictating for her to do or directing for her to do. Says, uh, this person says, why does it seem that E was an afterthought? He said it's not good for man to be alone, so make a helpmate for him. Uh, so, that's, so the idea that she's an afterthought is an interpretation of how we read the Scripture. Um, in fact, if you look at how the Scripture um, unfolds in the work of creation, do it, go back and read the, the, uh, the creation week. What, 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 what is the course of how creation occurs? The, the pinnacle of creation occurs first, or the foundation, and each day moves towards the pinnacle. Higher order creation comes first, or higher order creation comes last? Which is higher order creation? Inanimate, non-living material, or living material? Uh, and, and which is higher order? The, the lower animals and the beasts of the field, or Adam? And so one can make the argument that Eve is the ultimate pinnacle of creation, the final completion, the cherry on the cake. Okay? 
and it's not good for him to be alone was affirmatively stated because God was wanting us to take note. There's something special about to happen here. Adam was created in the image of God. God is love. Adam cannot enter into the fullness of God-like love without someone for Adam to serve, to sacrifice himself for, to minister to. And Eve was received, it was created to be the recipient of Adam's self-sacrificial love, receive that love and minister that love back to Adam. Uh, again, a never-ending circle of love in union with God, a triune perfection of love, representing the Godhead. And they were created to be the image of God jointly together. The two together become a single human unit. The, the Godhead representing, as we read earlier in our class today. So that's why I would understand that. So uh, this says, in the case of Tamar, Second Samuel, she uh, was hated by Amnon after he disgraced her. What is your advice for those who have Amnon's heart? Do you think that he could lose his soul if he kept going this way? Please elaborate this matter. Uh, yes. Absolutely. Um, this is why Jesus said that, you, uh, that you know, our, we do not receive forgiveness if we are not willing and choose to forgive others. That does not mean God does not forgive us. What it means is if we refuse to forgive, if we harbor hatred, bitterness, resentment, anger, then we are actually keeping our heart closed and are not benefiting from the forgiveness God is extending toward us. And so, yes, uh, the, the, the reason God gives us the command to forgive those who do us wrong is because only through our choice to forgive do we remove the seeds of sin and evil, the seeds of bitterness, hatred, resentment, selfishness from our own heart that the evil perpetrated upon us planted there. And God does not want them to take root. And we see that in Christ where he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This forgiveness showed that their evil did not take root in Christ's heart. He was not corrupted by their evil. He did not hate them. He was not bitter to them. But his forgiveness of them did not change them. They did not repent. They remained hateful and resentful and bitter. And so, yes, if we have been done wrong by anybody and we choose to harbor that, it will harden our heart and close us off from the grace of God. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, and we thank you for the way your kingdom works. And we ask that your spirit will be poured out. Finish your work in our hearts. Seal us to your kingdom. Pour, pour out your, your power and, and presence upon us that we can be your witnesses this time in history. We pray in your holy name. Amen.